3: Kanye, sit down. Beyonce is not going to be hosting the show today. Sorry. Oh, sorry, folks. Bennett Kelly here. Good morning. Um, welcome to Cyber Law and Business Report. We got a, a great show for you today, and um, we're broadcasting live here from the Internet Law Center in Santa Monica, um, the heart of Silicon Beach. Check out our blog post at CyberLawRadio.wordpress. We have all the information on our guests today, and our guests. Uh, our featured guest is Marianne Franks. She's a professor at the University of Miami and um, one of the leading advocates on revenge porn. She's also vice president of the Cyber Civil Rights um, Initiative. And um but before we go to her, um today is Thomas Edison's birthday, and on this day they celebrate Inventor's Day. And imagine going to watching the Tonight Show or some other show. And the actor says, well, I don't want to talk about my movie. I want to talk about this patent I came up with um, that helps um, torpedo technology. Well, actually, um, there is such a person, and that was Hetty Lamar, one of the um, screen sirens of the 40s, actually has a patent that deals with torpedo technology, and she's the... Uh, kind of the star of the day for Inventors Day, which is celebrated this year at honor of Thomas Edison, and they're saluting Hedy Lamar for her invention, which actually the, the Navy didn't want, um, it turns out, but it ended up leading to breakthroughs in wireless um, technology. So, um, hats off to Hedy Lamar and all you inventors out there, um, but without further ado, we're going to bring on our guest, Marianne Franks. Our guest today is... Um, University of Miami law professor, Marianne Franks, also vice president of the Cyber Civil Rights Institute. Marianne, are you with us? Yes, I am. Thanks for joining us. We're really thrilled to have you. So tell us a little bit about what, what your work is with um, Miami Law School.
0: I'm an associate professor of law at the University of Miami, and I teach criminal law, criminal procedure, family law, and a seminar on bias.
3: And... um you've you've been very outspoken in the area of um revenge porn. Um how is it that you came to that issue?
0: A few years ago, I had written a piece called Unwilling Avatars which addressed the problem of online discrimination, especially against women and the types of online abuses that were becoming increasingly common, and one of the topics that I had revenge porn, although I didn't focus on it exclusively, and about two years ago, a victim of revenge porn came across that article. Uh, she was a victim in Florida and had been unsuccessful in her attempts to try to get lawyers, police officers, really anyone to take her um, particular case. She had started looking for other resources and she'd come across my piece and she thought it might be productive if we had met and talked about the possibility, in her view of changing the laws so that they did, in fact, do something to address this conduct. And as it turned out, we lived in the same city. We lived in Miami, both of us. And she contacted me and we had a conversation about what had happened to her. And to make a fairly long story short, we decided that we were going to try to do something to advocate for reform legislatively, technologically, and socially. And that's how the Cyber Civil Rights initiative was founded by Holly Jacobs and um, a few other people that she brought on board then.
3: And we, we had a, a show last year, I believe, on Revenge Forum. We had a number of victims. We didn't have Holly, but um, everyone spoke about Holly's leadership in this area. So you, um, in working with the um, Cyber Civil Rights Institute, um, you, you're trying to push for legislative reform and and to actually outlaw these, these actions. Now. There have been some academics who have suggested that um, the problem really can just simply be addressed. regulation just don't take the pictures. What do you say about that?
0: I think if people really stop and think about what that means, it would be obvious why that's not an appropriate response. And there's many reasons for that. One is, you know, if you want to call it self-regulation, that's one way of putting it. Another way of putting it is to ask people to engage in censorship of themselves. And it's odd because many of the academics who would suggest that would never suggest that with regard to any other type of activity. We don't generally tell um, people that they shouldn't share their information with, for instance, doctors or with waiters or with Google, um, just because there's a possibility that that kind of information will be disclosed without your consent. It's a strange perspective to say that the victims are the ones who need to punish themselves and to regulate themselves rather than saying that the people who have engaged in malicious behavior should um, have something happen to them instead. And even if it weren't the case that this is probably morally unsound and logically unsound, it, it also wouldn't work. Uh, the fact of the matter is, given the nature of technology, everybody could become a victim of this, no matter right. how careful you are, because of the fact that you have cell phones now that can take pictures without people knowing you have Women, unfortunately, um, who have been sexually assaulted, and as they're being assaulted, pictures are being taken of them. So it actually doesn't even make any sense to say, don't take these pictures, because we now know that even if you are very, very careful about not taking these pictures, um, this could still happen to you.
3: And part of the problem in addressing this issue is that too often the victims are blamed.
0: That's certainly one of the biggest problems with this, that we still seem to struggle in our society with putting the blame on perpetrators when it comes to particular forms of conduct that are primarily directed at women and are primarily perpetrated by men. So we see very similar types of arguments when people talk about sexual assaults and even domestic violence. Instead of condemning what these people are doing to other people to harm them, we seem to continually insist that it's women who need to do something different, that they need to restrain themselves or restrict themselves or undermine their own freedoms because somebody could hurt them, and that's completely the wrong way to look at it, and it probably does explain why we're in such a bad situation now. It's because we keep looking at victims to change things as opposed to condemning what the perpetrators are doing.
3: Now, you, know, one thing that the Cyber Civil Rights Institute you know, cites is also Daniel Citron's piece on um, cyber civil rights um, written a few years ago, and um, her contention that a lot of the indifference to these issues, and even the cyber harassment to an extent, was um, was gender-based.
0: That's right. That Really, one of the dimensions of this that people sometimes ignore is that this is very much a gendered phenomenon. That isn't to say that there aren't male victims, and that isn't to say that there aren't female perpetrators, because there are, but primarily as a phenomenon, this is something that men are doing to women, and it enforces a certain view of women, it enforces a certain view of women's bodies as public property, um, of the appropriateness of punishing a woman because she doesn't want to be in a relationship with somebody anymore. And so it's very important to pay attention to those gendered consequences because the effects of them really are to push women out of public spaces in a way that's not um, not all that unfamiliar to us from what we've seen when women were entering the workplace and they were being sexually harassed in the workplace It intimidated a lot of women. It discouraged a lot of them from continuing to enter these professions. And what we needed at that time was serious legislative and social reform to say, no, women have a right to be here. They have a right to participate in public spaces, and they shouldn't be intimidated um, from those types of spaces. They shouldn't be abused and harassed and essentially um, discriminated against. And that's something very similar to what's happening now.
3: And it's interesting, about five years ago, I was at a conference. It was um, for the, I think, the 100th anniversary of Brandeis' um, publication of the Right to Privacy in now in Harvard Law Review. And um, and also coincided with an FTC roundtable on privacy. It was held up in Berkeley. And actually, Dan, um, Danielle was there. And um, I was talking to her and, and we're talking about cyber harassment. And I said, you know, here we have over like 100 people. Um, academics and you know lawyers and all who were involved in privacy, and but hardly anyone was was there um, involved in cyber harassment. In fact, if you brought it up, they you know, they kind of thought it uncouth. And um, I think it was, it was so bizarre that you would have all these people who can get so worked up over you know a cookie on someone's desktop. But you know, I, I remember saying to Danielle, check me if I'm you know if I'm wrong, but I don't think anyone's killed themselves over a cookie on their desktop. And it just seemed to be just a, a great disparity in the resources that were being applied to, you know, certain issues but not others. And uh, I, it led me to write a piece in Huffington about the unbearable indifference to cyber harassment. And um, I think we've come a long way, but I think it's a lot of it's because of advocates like you and Danielle. Um, so I want to commend you for doing that. So um, fortunately um, today, we're not here to talk about um, – You know, we still have a long way to go, but we actually do have some successes to talk about. Um, This month, there was a big verdict in San Diego where there was a conviction of a revenge porn operator. And then the FTC just entered a consent decree with another revenge porn operator. Can you tell us about those?
0: Yes. So very recently, we've seen that um, one one revenge porn site operator has been convicted on several felony criminal charges and these are stemming from his activities related to the revenge porn site that he ran where he was engaging in what the uh, what according to California state law was considered identity theft and extortion so this was obtaining women's personal information including their images but also other personal information on this revenge porn site and also seemingly to offer the possibility of getting those images taken down for a fee. So there's the extortion part of it. And this is, I believe, the first criminal conviction of a revenge porn site operator, although there have been uh, criminal convictions of revenge porn perpetrators before this. And then in the FTC case, you had this really interesting intervention on the part of the federal government against a revenge porn site owner, effectively saying that what he did, what he did to these women and taking these pictures and putting them on the site was unfair business practices, which is kind of a different direction that this conversation can go into, especially given the fact that revenge porn has unfortunately become a business model. The FTC has weighed in to say that we think that business model is illegal.
3: Yeah, I think um, there was a a piece in The Atlantic heralding this really as um, the beginning of the end of the revenge porn industry. Do, Do you see it as that?
0: That's a very optimistic take. It's certainly possible that this FTC intervention will lead to a kind of shutting down generally of the revenge porn sites. That is to say that the industry side of it might uh, really, this might really be a blow to the industry. But in itself, this is just one revenge porn site operator. Um, The site was actually defunct before the FTC intervened. And he's not being very heavily punished here. He's essentially been told that he can't do this anymore. He can't ever do it again. And he's supposed to destroy the pictures that he has. But that's one individual. That's one site. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't going to be 20, 30 other um, revenge porn site operators just waiting to take his place. And even if, if optimistically we really are able to shut down the industry side of it, it isn't necessarily going to speak to the other types of conduct here, the very personalized conduct that we see among ex-partners, especially whose entire agenda is not business related. It's really just right. to destroy that person's life. So this isn't really going to stop
3: them. And that you won't stop. And, um, you know, whether it's revenge porn or it was just harassment that, that, that will not stop. And, um, it's unfortunately just a, a terrible part of human nature, I'm afraid. Um, but you know, the conviction, I think, is important. This guy is facing up to twenty years in jail, and so I think the message to people, if you're thinking about going into this, um, you know, I think that's a it's a loud message.
0: It's a very loud message, and we we hope that it's one that people will hear, not just in in the sense of don't run a site because he was actually running a revenge porn site, but to speak to what you were discussing before about. The this very long history we've had of people, especially men, taking vengeance on women that they are unhappy with, it may be that that's something that we can't ever fully eradicate, but we can certainly, we can certainly discourage it by suggesting that our society finds this conduct reprehensible and that we find it so harmful that we're actually going to if you do it. So if that becomes the message, that not just revenge porn site operators, but also anybody who engages in non-consensual pornography that if the message really is, and we have strong enough laws across um, the 50 states and also at the federal level, that that really will send the message to say this is a serious harm. It causes irreversible damage, and it is not in any way justified, and you can go to prison for it. That would certainly go a very long way to deterring misconduct.
3: Now, you, know, you mentioned you know, too often, and of course it is usually the men who are doing it, but a lot of times, I in cases I've seen, it's sometimes it's the ex. Um, excuse me, it's the new girlfriend finding your know, her boyfriend's um, cell phone and saying, "Who's this?" and wanting to do payback.
0: That's certainly true, and there have been whole sites dedicated to that model. Unfortunately, there's a a site um, called She's a Homewrecker com, which pretty much has that as its model—that you punish the women that you find out your husband is cheating on you with, and. That's a bizarre reaction in many respects, and it's a very upsetting one that instead of blaming somebody who's actually betrayed, betrayed you with. So that's already a, a strange response, but that anybody should think that it's appropriate to use sexual intimacy as a form of punishment, that anyone thinks that they're justified just because they're hurt or they're upset or they're jealous, that they are entitled then to take this person's intimate information and use it against them. Is really appalling, and it's appalling that men are doing it, and it's appalling that women are doing it. It's it's just appalling.
3: Now, you know, in in doing the legislative effort, you know how how are you finding broaching this topic? You know, I was actually at a leg- you know a meeting with some local state assemblymen um, here, and one actually it was Ted Lieu. I led to the Congress from this area, and I raised the topic of revenge porn. And one, he didn't know who it was, and everyone else just looked at me like I was some kind of freak and um, but then a week later he you know he found out about it and they you know california had just passed something and he made a point of telling me hey we passed something and um and so once you you alert them to it they seem to respond but what is the first blush when you raise the issue
0: well it depends on your audience but it's usually an uncomfortable conversation to have regardless who you're speaking with people are scared of the word porn for lots of different reasons And a lot of people aren't sure what it is, what what revenge porn actually means, which is part of why we've actually suggested saying non-consensual pornography instead of revenge porn. So the reaction can be anything from uh, that's terrible, this shouldn't happen, it should be against the law to, well, some of the the conversations that we've discussed already, some of the responses are, well, what are you doing taking these pictures to begin with? To um, just general discomfort, I don't want to talk about this at all because it involves sex in some way.
3: There is that. This is okay. This is not a a PG conversation. You know, let's let's wait till there are only adults at the table, or you know, something of that nature. But so, right now, there's a couple of states that have outlawed revenge porn: Um, California, but New Jersey, I believe. And um, is there another state?
0: We actually are up to 16 states, and this, 16 is, this states. Is, quite, it is quite a leap from, from two years ago. Uh, two years ago when this issue started to receive mainstream attention, there were only three states that had laws that were applicable to nonconsensual pornography. In the last year and a half, two years or so, another 13 states have joined them, and I think that's a real testament to the work of the Cyber Silver Rights Initiative, um, also of organizations like Without My Consent, all these groups and all these really tremendously brave victims that are coming forward to talk about their stories and to um, really push for the idea that there needs to be laws against this.
3: Now you just, um, and so have you been doing a lot of the lobbying yourself?
0: Well, what we've been doing is essentially a few years ago when Holly came to me with this idea and and this proposition that it might be possible to have a law against this. uh, What I did was I wrote a model statute and I wrote a model statute both for the state level and also for the federal level. And we started, that was something that I posted on a legal theory blog. And then we started uh, posting it on the website that we eventually set up for the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative and also for the End Revenge Porn campaign. And then we started getting contacted by state legislators who were interested in the issue and they wanted to work with me on drafting a law. And so I've now worked with, I think, total 26 states in Washington, D.C., Either to help them draft or help them revise or to testify on the issue. So we've we worked with quite a few states now um, that have either passed legislation or are hoping to pass legislation in the very near future.
3: Now you're working, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're working with Jackie, <laughs> Congresswoman Jackie Spear, on That's the right. federal statute.
0: Yes, we're working at the federal level as well, as you say, with the Office of Representative Jackie Spear, and we are. Still in the drafting stages, but we're getting close, I hope, to um, a version that we can introduce early
3: soon. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be talking to Marianne Franks about revenge porn after these messages. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report, only on Webmaster WebmasterRadio.fm. Stay tuned
2: for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors.
4: Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at com.
5: at BruceClay.com.
4: winning leadership excellence and results as well as an a rating by the better business bureau for reach engagement and conversion it's all inclusive marketing reserve a free consultation today at all slash radio
2: The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm.
3: And we're back. We're talking to Marianne Franks. And before the break, she was talking about drafting legislation, federal legislation, with Congresswoman Jackie Speier, who represents Northern California. And um, Professor Franks, can you tell us more about that?
0: Well, the federal law would essentially have the same elements as the state, some of the state laws that have been passed, um, with the caveat that some of the states that have passed laws have done not as good of a job, maybe in terms of being clear and being narrowly focused on the issue. There's obviously First Amendment concerns that have to be addressed. So some of the state laws are very good and some of them are less good. What we're obviously trying to do at the federal level is to take the best version of those elements and use that because the federal law will have so much more impact not just in the sense of the jurisdiction but also that it's the strongest message from the our country from our society to say this is what we consider to be wrong and what we're going to do about people who engage in this type of behavior and because it is a federal criminal law it has implications for websites and for social media and for search engines that state laws would not Uh, there are as you know, certain protections for websites and social media under Section 230, which is a federal law that gives them very broad immunity from any kind of actions flowing from the content that's posted by other people. So uh, what would happen, though, if this became a federal criminal law is that they wouldn't necessarily be able to raise that as a defense. And so it has more potential impact.
3: And um, people often say, well... Revenge porn can be dealt with through existing statutes. In fact, you know some of the initial prosecutions um, were under non-revenge porn statutes. And in the response, I think to that argument is that it ignores the the fact that law serves a normative purpose, and um, and so enacting a federal um, revenge porn statute would would actually make a statement, as you said. And, and serve a purpose, even if it is only marginally creating, you know, marginally different authority. But in addition, um, the federal, you know, federal prosecutors have far more resources than state prosecutors, and and have greater sophistication. And when you're dealing with the issue of you know internet technology, um, having the ability of a, a federal prosecution, as opposed to a state, is is, is an enormous difference.
0: I think that that's right. And it certainly is part of, or should be part of the conversation to talk about the expressive power of law, that it isn't just about how many prosecutions you get. It's about trying to communicate strong social norms. And ideally, anybody who cares about this issue, it's not that you want people to go to jail. What you want is for people to be scared of going to jail and therefore not engage in this behavior. What we're trying to get at with the criminal law is condemnation and deterrence. That's the, Those are the primary goals. And if it's only for people that are undeterred by that, that unfortunately then need to be punished. But really the idea is to, this is what's the, the wonderful and also very potentially very powerful aspect of criminal law that we should not want to abuse, is to express really important um, values. And to say these are the types of things that are not acceptable in our society. These are things that violate equality and freedom and liberty and privacy. And they're, um, and we really need to strongly communicate the condemnation of this type of activity. And as, as a practical matter, as you mentioned, federal prosecutors often have more resources and more training. We do hope that every state will also have adequate training and resources for this type of conduct. And we're attempting to help law enforcement departments across the country by helping train them on these subjects. But the fact of the matter is we hear from so many victims every day that are frustrated because they aren't getting any type of uh, relief or remedy. And that's either because there is no criminal law in their state or there isn't any activity. The the law enforcement isn't taking it seriously. We're just hearing from and the reason why the initiative was started and and the campaign has moved in this direction is because victims are telling us there isn't really a remedy for that. Laws simply
3: aren't enough. And, and that is a challenge. And, you know, I find in some of the victims that I've talked to in, in this area and other areas of cyber harassment is that, you know, I've often they say, you know, my, the police say that they, they just can't handle this type of thing. You know, they're not equipped. They don't understand it. And they say, what should I do? And then a couple of times I say, well, vote with your feet you know, move to a jurisdiction where they, they, they provide resources to their law enforcement so they can protect its citizens. And, you know, it's, it's, a, tough, it's a tough place to be in. That's why you want the, the advantage of the federal government, um, because they have those resources. The prosecutors understand it better.
0: This is true and that you also, I think it's right to say certain things. Um, again, unfortunately, this is not unique to the problem of non-consensual pornography. It's the story that many victims will tell you if they are being stalked or being harassed online. We know now that the online abuse of women is not just limited to things like non-consensual pornography, it's threats, it's abuse, it's constant sexual propositions, and law enforcement isn't doing a good job about that either. So we have this, we obviously have some real deficiencies in both our social norms and our legal norms and our law enforcement norms about how seriously to take these issues and how to provide officers with the appropriate training to deal with them because this also implicates technology in a way that many law enforcement officers may not, be prepared to, um, may not be prepared to address. They may not have the adequate understanding of technology and the way that it works to really address, and that has to change.
3: So what is the prognosis for action on, in Capitol Hill and Washington on this bill?
0: Well, we hope that everyone, no matter what their affiliation, can agree on the importance of privacy generally. I think many people have expressed that in many different contexts. And part of what we're pointing out is that sexual privacy is, should, should have just as much respect, if not more respect, than other forms of privacy. If we have laws already that say our personal information in the form of our social security numbers or our health records, if we all recognize that those are important privacy protections, the images of ourselves that are most vulnerable certainly should be considered just as private. So in a way, this isn't calling for newfound attention for any particular topic. It's saying we shouldn't be treating sexual privacy as less than all these other forms of privacy. So let's bring it up to the same level as uh, we would treat other forms of intimate information. But in terms of
3: academic debate, at least, on Internet legal issues, um, the closest there is to a third rail in that context um, is dealing with Section Two Hundred and Thirty of the you know the Communications DC Act, which provides immunity you know for websites with third party con- content, and there there are some um, who are quite adamant that you know it is the Magna Carta of the internet, and um, and any tampering to that is just a, a slippery slope that's just going to lead to censorship. You know that's kind of a, a oversimplification of their argument. But what do you what do you say to that?
0: Well, I think there's there's some merit to that, right? That there it's clearly the case that section two thirty has made it possible for us to get the internet that we have today. Now then the question is, is the internet that we have today the best possible version of the internet? And I think the answer to that is no, but it's certainly true that we want there to be certain protections so that free speech, free expression can flourish online what we have to be careful about is whether that's really what's happening because of these protections or whether in fact you're silencing large groups of people if in fact the the protections you have in place are making it possible to intimidate harass and discriminate against people so that they flee from online spaces then it's hard to say that that's really freedom it's hard to say that that's encouraging an open uh, and free market of a marketplace of ideas so Section 230, if you look at its goals, actually says, you know, these are some of the important goals is for us for us to have this kind of marketplace of ideas that doesn't use that language. But that's the idea. Well, we really do have to evaluate whether or not it's accomplishing that. And I do think you can read Section 230 in a way that does accomplish that. You, you hold intermediaries are not responsible for the kinds of things that other users, third-party users, are posting on those forums. That makes a lot of sense, and I don't think we actually should tamper with that. What we have done, though, in Section 230 itself is said that, well, that's not going to be true across the board. The immunity that intermediaries have is not complete. It's not going to apply to copyright. We all know that, right? If YouTube is actually responsible for taking down videos if there's a copyright complaint – and it's also not going to be something you can raise in defense against federal criminal law. So Facebook can't say, well, we don't care about child pornography. It's not our problem. It doesn't matter if our users want to engage in it. Obviously, it does matter. And legally speaking, it matters, too, because Section 230 will not provide you a defense to that. So our the, the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative proposal to make nonconsensual pornography a federal crime is not actually tinkering with Section 230. We're not suggesting amending it. What we're suggesting is that if it if this is a federal crime, then that means it would be a lot like child pornography or it would be a little bit like copyright. That is to say, you have responsibilities here and you have to actually address this content because it's so harmful.
3: Yeah, but there are some people that say once you once you go to 230, everything's off the table. Um, you, you can't draw any carve-outs. But there already is, as you mentioned, you know, copyright. If we can do copyright efficiently into Section 230, revenge porn efficiently,
0: well, that's exactly the question. Now, many people would say that the copyright regime is not particularly efficient, and, and there's certainly some merit to that argument too, but it certainly hasn't broken the Internet. We, we know that intermediaries have to respect federal criminal law. We know that they have to respect copyright law, and that has not stopped the Internet from um, becoming quite powerful, let's just say. So if we have those exceptions already, and that federal criminal law exception is hundreds and hundreds of laws that we're, we're talking about. So if all of that has worked so far and we're simply suggesting that one particularly one particular form of egregious conduct should be included in that federal criminal law idea, then it's hard to see why people would see this as um, something destructive of se- Section 230. It's really just off on fines of 230 itself.
3: And um, so getting back to the, the cyber civil rights initiative, um, you guys recently have um, obviously made some great strides in terms of, excuse me, you work on at the state level, but you've recently just um, made some partnerships with some major law firms to actually prosecute um, cases in this. Can you tell us about that?
0: We have the great fortune of working with the law firm of K&L Gates. Um, they have started this collaboration project with us called the Cyber Civil Rights Legal Project, and it provides pro bono assistance to victims. So that can range from certain types of tort suits to copyright actions, depending on what the the victim needs. And that's been a tremendous, tremendous resource for our victims. And we are so grateful and so excited about that particular project.
3: And what states is that available in, or is that nationwide?
0: It's actually nationwide and potentially global because K&L Gates has offices not only throughout the United States, but also throughout the world, and so it's really just a question of whether or not they have the capacity to take on any particular case in any particular place, uh, depending on whether they've got lawyers there who are able to work on that matter.
3: I actually have one case where the guy who was doing it um, was a, a seaman, and he spent 90% of his um, time at sea. He actually was you know, the closest you can get to a man without a country. Mm-hmm. And um, you're trying to figure out what jurisdiction you you could get him in, and you know his parents lived in the UK, so that that was one option. But you know, it's just, you know it was just a weird peculiarity of you know how do you get jurisdiction over something like that. But then you know, um, do you think there's likely to be any international um, cooperation on this or treaties or anything of that nature? I
0: think it would be wonderful if that would happen. I mean, we've seen it happen with other forms of serious conduct. There there are lots of international agreements regarding child exploitation, for instance. And so there's some reason to think and some basis for believing that there could be potentially international collaboration on this issue going forward. And I think as we see the implications for the internet, right? If it is a global phenomenon, which it clearly is, we're going to need to have international cooperation on several of these issues because just by its nature, we're not going to know which law to use. I mean, we can talk all we want in the States about the First Amendment, but that doesn't apply to other countries. Other countries don't have the First Amendment. So if Google is global, which it is, if Facebook is global, then we need to start thinking about the legal context for all of all of this Internet activity. And it isn't just going to be a matter of U.S.
3: law and U.S. principles. So if people want more information about the initiative or if they want to know how they can help, what, where should they go?
0: The best thing for them to do is to go to our specific campaign website on revenge porn, which is endrevengeporn.org. There, they can find information about resources for victims, including our brand new helpline, which we're really happy about for victims. It's a 24-hour helpline that they can that victims can call. Um, that's 878 CCRI. They can also go to the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative webpage, which is cybercivilrights.org, for more information about our organization and other projects that we're hoping to take on um, after or alongside the In Revenge Porn project. And you'll find lots of resources on both of those websites about uh, in, engaging in this fight, if if for lack of a better term, to encourage people to reach out to their legislators and ask for laws on this particular subject, to reach out to their federal legislators and encourage some action on this topic, and also other ways that they might be able to support victims and to condemn this practice and and try to help eradicate it.
3: Well, thank you very much. Um, And what about, are you doing anything, uh, people want to learn more about what you're doing at University of Miami, where should they go?
0: If they'd like to learn more about my work at the University of Miami, they can find me on the faculty page of University of Miami. Uh, I don't have the website address. The,
3: <laughs> there's actually, there's yeah. a link on our blog. So. Oh,
0: that's <laughs> wonderful, yes. And they can follow me on Twitter as well. I'm at um, my, my handle is ma underscore Franks. And I also have a personal blog that they can follow me on, which is MarianneFranks.com.
3: Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, and it's great to have you. Um, Please keep up the fight and um, keep us posted on how you're doing. But thanks again for being on the show.
0: Thank you so much.
3: We'll be back after these messages. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber
2: Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors.
4: As the number one domain name auction platform, Namejet.com is the best place to find domains for your business or investment. So light the afterburners to the domain name aftermarket and fly over to Namejet.com at mock speed to get great domains today. Namejet.com
5: Building better search engine rankings takes the right formula. Tracking those rankings is super simple. All you need is AuthorityLabs.com.
2: the best gavel to gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on Webmaster
3: Radio.fm. And we're back. This is Bennett Kelly. I want to thank Marianne Franks again. It was great having her. And uh, she's done an incredible job in the fight against revenge porn. Um, I want to do a few shout outs um, to start off this last segment. Um, first of all, um, yesterday, for those of you who may not have been aware, was Safer Internet Day, and um, the California Attorney General had a, a session with a bunch of um, school children, um, along with um, Facebook CEO Sheryl Sandberg, and the very it was a very informative session. Um, and the very first panel was hosted by our none other than our very frequent guest Dan Tynan. And so I want to give him a shout out for a great job. It was an interesting panel, um, where they talked about bullying um for, at, in in school environments. So um great job there. Um secondly I also want to thank um just some birthday announcements. Um celebrating their tenth birthday as a blog is um Eric Goldman's um technology marketing blog, which um He started on his own, but has actually been doing uh, for much of the last few years with um, fellow co blogger Venkat, um, who's just a great guy for those of you who don't know him. Um, But so I want to congratulate them. They've done a great job. It's one of the first blogs I look to um, for what's going on in the internet. And uh, so a very happy 10th to both of them. Um, And today is also the 80th birthday of tina louise also known as ginger on gilligan's island um i've met marianne but i can't say i've met ginger and uh, so i mean it is a um a, a, a major landmark for anyone to reach and you know she's definitely a tv icon so happy birthday to miss louise um it's also yesterday was the birthday of a uh, a very loyal follower of this show, Reg Levy, at, at um, Mind Machines, and so a happy birthday to Reg, um, and I hope it was a good one. And today is the 25th anniversary of a very uh, important moment in the 20th century. You kind of remember where you were when the Berlin Wolf Wall fell. Well, 25 years ago today was when Nelson Mandela was released from jail, and uh, I remember watching... Um, as he took his first steps from, um, to freedom. And, uh, it was broadcast live, uh, throughout the world. And, uh, it was quite a moment. And it was at that moment of hope. Um, you knew apartheid was going to, um, the, was going to collapse on its own weight. And, uh, eventually Mandela would lead South Africa through that transition. And, uh, he passed two years ago. So, but, um, definitely a very memorable moment in the 25th century 21st century um, 25 years ago today um, a couple of um, the opposite of shoutouts would be shame outs um, f- former um, Florida governor and likely presidential candidate Jeb Bush has actually um, he did a data dump where he re- he released his emails in the whole concept of transparency, but he didn't um, redact anything. So he gave away a whole bunch of um, personal information for people, and um, he's reluctantly trying to claw back and uh, um, trying to now redact that information after making that all available on the World Wide Web. Um, Urban Outfitters, which gained attention a little, uh, few months back with offering a Kent State sweatshirt that had faux bloodstains, you know, in um, Kent States University where on um, May 4th, 1970, um, four students were killed and um, shot by National Guards um, following a, a Vietnam protest. And um, so their latest offering in um, tragic chic, so to speak, is a tapestry that um, evokes the garb worn by concentration camp inmates. And I can only say that there's a bounds of poor taste, and they're not even close. Um, so shame on you. And then um, you may remember last year, um, John Oliver on um, his HBO show um, called out FCC chairman uh, on net neutrality. And led to this huge spike in social media and calling for net neutrality and, you know, maybe even contributed to the strong net neutrality proposal we're seeing from the FCC. Well, um, the, the, the latest <laughs> the target of his attack is um, Ecuadorian president. Um, Rafael Correa, who um, has been engaging in a social media war, saying anyone who criticizes him, he will have his people gang up on them in social media. Um, quite an imager act for a president. And, um, well, John Oliver, in his first show of this new season, called him out. And, uh, and there's huge and gave everyone uh, his Twitter, the president's Twitter address, and there's been a huge response. And so I think it's, it's definitely um, created some political backlash for the president, and rightfully so. So um, hats off and um, shame on all the people we mentioned above. We do have some news updates for you, and um, one is that you may recall we had Ben Smith on our show who is the Sac County prosecutor in Iowa who's been going after a ripoff report. Um, and um, ripoff report, they've already indicted um, Darren Mead, who is an operative for ripoff report. And um, the investigation has been ongoing. there have been a lot of legal skirmishes with ripoff report, and there's been rumors that you know some action may be taken against Ed Magison. Um, well, Ed Madison and ripoff report have now filed a civil rights action against Ben Smith claiming that the prosecution is somehow depriving them of their civil rights. It seems to me like a, you know, that is actually communicating more about what's going on than anything. It seems to me that it's a desperate attempt to try to stall um, a, a likely indictment. And so um, we will keep you posted on that. But this information about the, these updates as well as um, background on the show on our blog at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com Um In addition, the other big story is the Anthem data breach. And in terms of data breaches, um, 80 million are are affected, which is large but not the largest. But um, this is medical information, and that is a whole different type of data um, and a very much more valuable data and uh, can have a far greater impact on um, its users just because of the nature of it. Um, and the nature of what, what it, what how it could be used. So um, it is actually. This, some people are saying this could be um, kind of the Exxon Valdez for data breaches. And so there's, there's already over a dozen lawsuits that have been filed against um, Anthem. Um, a number of attorney generals are criticizing Anthem for their slow response. Um, insurance commissioners have, have all called together. That they're going to be a 50-state investigations. So this is a disaster that is happening um, and just exploding right now. And so Anthem really has some, um, going to have some challenges. But it, it, it's an industry, actually, that is being overwhelmed um, because of the richness of medical data. They are getting targeted so often, and I think this money is 80%. Um, you know, medical institutions have had some data breach in the past few years so um, it raises increased need for vigilance in um, cybersecurity. security um, and then a um, quick update on Rafe Badawi um, his, um, flog, blog, uh, his flogging has been postponed again and uh, Prince Charles is actually in Saudi Arabia and um, has urged the Saudis to, um, to um, go easy on him and release him so Um, The fact that Prince Charles is interceding um, is a good thing, Um, and so hopefully, you know, this whole cruel flogging of a blogger for you know expressing political beliefs will um, will come to an end, and he'll be released as his um, co-founder was as well. So um, it's been a a great show. We want to thank Mary and Frank's again. Um, And next week um, we're going to be talking um, with the. the author of Black Box Society, and then the following week we're going to have a segment on um, net neutrality on the eve of the FCC vote on the um, net neutrality proposal. So, a um, couple of interesting shows coming up next week. If you have any ideas or shows you'd like us to con- you know, cover, um, contact us mm-hmm. on Twitter at Cyberlaw Radio. Um, and otherwise, I um, look forward to talking to you next week um, here, right here on Cyberlaw Business Report. Only on Webmaster Radio FM. Um, Have a great week. This is Bennett Kelly. Um, Check us out at the internetlawcenter.net. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks again.